Hey, welcome to episode number 33 of More Than Bread. My name is Dan Nold. I'm a pastor, your Bible reader, and host for this podcast, More Than Bread. You know, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah once said to God, kind of a prayer, uh, in in, uh, Jeremiah 15, 16, he prayed, Oh God, when I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God of heaven's armies. When I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. I just pray, I, I'm hoping that you are devouring the words of God, that you're you're beginning to build up a, a bit of a an appetite, a, a desire for more and more of his words. It takes more than bread to bring joy and delight into our hearts. It takes the words of God that drip, sometimes like honey, sometimes like a sword from his mouth. In this episode, we're reading and pondering the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Paul wrote these two letters, most likely from Corinth. In fact, it may be one of the earliest of Paul's letters that made it into the New Testament. Thessalonica at that time was a thriving seaport, the largest city in Macedonia, and was the capital of its province. We, we read a bit about the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, which seems to indicate the church was primarily Gentiles, although it had to have started with some Jews because Paul would always go into a community and start in the synagogue. But, but the, the church at this time is primarily Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul left Thessalonica, if you remember this, quickly after a pretty short stay. So this new church with young Christians, baby Christians, new Christians, was, was left with little outside support and lots of persecution. So Paul is writing them to encourage them in their difficulties and, and give them instruction on how to live like Jesus in the midst of hard times, persecution. He, he also wants to assure them of the hope that we have in Christ that extends even after death, because that was a concern as they faced persecution. So let's dive into Thessalonians. I'll be reading both letters from the New Living Translation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause right there and just say, if, if God can say that of us, if, if there are people out there, leaders out there who can say that of us, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. That's so important. Verse 4, we know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. As I mentioned just a moment ago, my words, there's a a time, a season of persecution taking place here. In Thessalonica, for those who are followers of Christ, followers of the way. And so Paul says, you receive the message with joy in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, we finish up verse 6, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever we go. 
we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. I just love, before we go on to chapter 2, I I love that idea that the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. For Wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. Is that that true of us? Could that be said of us, that that wherever people go, they hear about our faith in God? That, That they don't even have to tell other people about Jesus because the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus, is is ringing out to people from us everywhere because of our faithful works, and our hope in the Lord, the way that we live our lives, the joy that we have in the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering that it might bring us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. And yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands on you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives, too. Let me say that again. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives, too. This is what love really is. Verse 9. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you? You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. My words, I I, I love what that says there. This word continues to work in you. See, when, when we bring the, the word of God into us, it's not so much a matter of us getting into the word. It's a matter of the word getting into us. And when it gets into us, it continues to work in us if we believe in it. Verse 14, And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. And in this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus, and now they've persecuted us too. They fail to please God, and they work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. 
but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Before I finish out this chapter, just remember that Paul is writing to people who are, who are going through a season of persecution. They're, they're suffering because they've made the choice to follow Jesus. And as he gives them these words, you, you hear some of that over and over again, the persecution and the suffering, but, but also hear the encouragement and the principles that he's giving them about how to live your life in the midst of difficult times. Verse 17 Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Before we go on to the next chapter, one of the things that has impacted me ever since I worked on my doctoral dissertation on organic leadership development, as I interviewed leaders of all different stripes, business people, marketplace, church, um, all, all sorts of different leaders, men and women, one of the things I found was as I asked them the question, what is it that catalyzed your leadership development, your growth, that without fail, every one of them had somebody who believed in them. It's somebody who believed in them. And, and as we read Paul's letters, I know at times there's conviction and there's encouragement, but, but you, you need to hear those places where Paul just says, I believe in you. You can do this. You can make this. For example, at the end of this chapter, when Paul says, you are our crown, you are our pride and joy. Paul's saying, I believe in you. You can do this. You can make it. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you are going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you well know. That is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord and how we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon and may the Lord make your love for one another and for all the people, grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong and blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all of his holy people. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more, for you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. 
Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Make it your goal to live a quiet life minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Let me pause for a moment. I, I use this passage of Scripture in almost every funeral that I do. And it is it is a message of hope, but if, if we don't understand what Paul is saying, we, we miss the hope. When, when Paul says, I do not want you to grieve like people who have no hope, he's not saying we never grieve. He's not saying, I don't want you to grieve. He's saying there is a particular way of grieving for those who have hope. And since you have hope, grieve like those who have hope. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. There's a difference. I see it all the time. I see it at funerals. I see it as people walk through difficult times. People who have hope can still grieve. We don't, we don't have to stuff it down. We don't have to hide it. We, we still grieve loss. But when we do it with hope, there's a soft edge to it. Paul says, grieve like people who have hope. Don't grieve like people who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died, here's our hope. My words, here's our hope. For since we believe that Jesus died, verse 14, was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And first, the believers who have died will rise from their grave. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, and he's referring back, my words, referring back to what I just read in verse 4 about Jesus coming again. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them, as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begins, and there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert, be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us, 
Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted, wholehearted love because of their work. And live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil. But always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that's said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. And now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a sacred kiss. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And now we move on to Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing. Your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And I need to read that again. What, what an amazing description of a church. It's, it's not about how amazing the worship service is or how great the singing, how great the preaching is. But, but here's what they're bragging about. We can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing. Your love for one another is growing. You're enduring and faithful in all the persecutions and hardships you're suffering. Verse 5, And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life that is worthy of his call. My words, let me pause a moment and just say, you, you hear that all the time. Paul prays that for the people that he cares about often. He talks about that often, that we would live a life worthy of our calling. Christ has called us. God has called us. We've been called by God to do good works, but also to be a part of his family, to be and to do. And Paul frequently prays that we would live a life that's worthy of our calling. What does that look like for you? May he give you, Paul continues on in verse 11, the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. 
And then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming." This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power, signs, and miracles. He'll use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Now before I continue on, because this is a question that I hear so often, especially when we go through seasons like this last year where things are difficult, everybody wants to know, are we living in the last days? And according to Paul from the book of Acts, yes, we are living in the last days, the days when the Spirit of God has been poured out. But those final days before the day of the Lord (laughs) begins, Paul says, "Don't, don't forget that the day will not come, the day of the Lord, the end of the ending, will not come until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. If he's not revealed, <laughs> the day hasn't come. Verse 13, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. And now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope May he comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when it came to you. Pray, too, that we will be rescued from wicked and evil people, for not everyone is a believer. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. And we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded you. May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. And now, 
Dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. And yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We, we command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. And now, may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. I do this in all my letters to prove they are from me. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As always, there's so much good stuff in what we read. I mean, when it's inspired by the Spirit of God, how can it not be good? But I, I want to pause in this episode on just one verse, really, from, from 1 Thessalonians and, and, and talk about one topic, the topic of hospitality. In 1, Timothy, in 1 Thessalonians excuse me, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, So, being affectionately desirous of you. Now, it says it a little bit differently in New Living Translation, which I just read. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul's talking about sharing not just the gospel, not, not just the truth of Jesus, not just Jesus, but sharing our very lives because you had become very dear to us. One of my childhood heroes was a woman named Theta Krieger. She was the very first missionary that I knew, a woman from Argentina who worked in Argentina with the children of Argentina. In our little church of 75 people in Coleman, South Dakota, she was our main missionary. And I, I remember experiencing a bit of awe when she would come and visit us. See, in our church growing up, missionaries were kind of the top echelon of Christians. To be a missionary was the highest calling a Christian could receive. I mean, there were Christians, and then there were pastors, and then there were missionaries. Missionaries were the elite, like the Navy SEALs of the Christian mission. And, and I'll tell you right now that, that she was a missionary who, who made a difference. Back in 1997, I reconnected with her when I went to Argentina to explore the work that God was doing there through prayer and evangelism, revival, and since then, as I've dug into a bit of her history, I found that well over 200 churches were started through her ministry. She shared the gospel with thousands of children. One of those young children was a man named Louis Palau, who recently died. And, and Louis went on to share the gospel with millions more people. Louis said this about Theta. She walked in the spirit, was filled with joy and humility, and she invested herself in my life and my family. Sometimes I still wake up at night and hear her voice saying, you've got to reach more children. Do you hear that? She invested herself in my life. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Paul was saying to the church at Thessalonica? Not only did we come to share the gospel with you, but we, we wanted to share our lives with you as well. Who are you sharing your life with? Who are you investing your life in? Theta died in 2011 at the age of 102 
with a, a legacy of impact that I can only hope to match. She finished well. But here's the, the interesting thing about Theta. Most of her ministry, most of her mission took place in her home or someone else's. She would gather children in her yard. She would sit in someone's kitchen, not, not big crusades, not within the structure of a huge church, not by supernatural, miraculous encounters, but just moments of what we might call small, ordinary awe. It's something like what I imagine the early church was experiencing when Luke wrote these words in Acts 2, 42 through 47. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their own homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, long before the church had pulpits and play spaces, she had dinner tables and kitchens. Long before the church was housed in a structure, the structure of the church was a house. Yes, of course, at least for a time in Jerusalem, they would gather together in the, in the temple, uh, but, but not every city even had a temple. And, and the day would come when the community synagogue was not such a welcoming place. You, you read through the New Testament looking for the where of the early church, and what you find is the what of somebody's home. A primary tool of the early church was somebody's home, actually everybody's home. See, what if we thought of our home as mission central for changing the world? C.H. Spurgeon, who pastored a move of God in London decades ago, once said in a sermon, Christians are either missionaries or they're imposters. See, I think that many of us who are Christ followers, we have a secret desire to change the world, to make a difference, to have an impact. And actually, I think Jesus planted that desire in your heart when you said yes to him. And for some of you, that flame still burns bright. But I don't know. I think a lot of us are thinking, but I'm not Theta Krieger. I'm just ordinary. I don't live in Argentina. I live in Bowlesburg. I'm not part of a missions organization. I just go to church. I'm a student. I can't even afford to go on a short-term missions trip. How can I change the world? Max Lucado challenges us to look at how the early church changed the world. He writes, without the aid of sanctuaries, church buildings, clergy, or seminaries, they changed the world through the clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. (laughs) And Luke tells us that as they taught in their homes and prayed in their homes and shared meals together in their homes, that awe filled their homes. When's the last time your house was a house of awe and wonder? A place where your neighbors could come, have their needs met, and in the process encounter God. What if awesome encounters often were meant to take place around kitchen tables? I mean, could it be that some holy encounters happen best in homes? Could it be that your front yard is where real ministry takes place? Is your neighborhood an unreached mission field where God has commissioned you to serve? I love Pastor Sky Jathani's argument for hospitality. He writes, We've fallen into the conventional thinking that a big mission demands big tactics, but we forget that in the economy of God's kingdom, big does not beget big. (laughs) It's precisely the opposite. The overwhelming message of Jesus' life and teaching is that small begets big. Consider God's plan to redeem creation, big is achieved through his incarnation as an impoverished baby, small. Jesus feed thousands on a hillside, big, with just a few fish and loaves, small. Christ seeks to make disciples of all nations, big, and he starts with a handful of fishermen, small. What if he wants to change our world 
using your home. A great word for how God wants to change the world by using your home is the biblical word hospitality. And the call to hospitality is all over the place in Scripture. In fact, some theologians have argued that hospitality is one of the chief attributes of God. I mean, listen to some of the scriptures. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Uh, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, the Greek word for hospitality is a combination of the word phlao and xenos. Phlao means brotherly love. The word xenos means stranger. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. So hospitality really means love the stranger as you love your own family. Love the stranger as you love your brother. Brotherly love for the stranger. Can I tell you what hospitality does not mean? (laughs) It does not mean entertaining guests. Unfortunately, in our culture today, we've defined hospitality as having someone over. I think Martha Stewart has done a lot to harm biblical hospitality. Hospitality is entertaining. We have to do it like Martha. But biblical hospitality is not entertaining guests. Biblical hospitality is not just having a guest over for a few hours. Biblical hospitality is the sharing of life with a stranger. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. This is true hospitality. We not only share the gospel, we share our lives. We, we not only invite you into our homes, we invite you into our hearts. And why would we do that? Be- because our neighbors are really nice people with cool gadgets? No. Because they think like us and look like us and act like us and love us? Absolutely not. Why? Because of the hospitality that Christ has offered us. Romans 15, 7, it says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, our welcome, our hospitality towards our neighbor is an unveiling, an uncovering, a a discovery, a revealing of the hospitality heart of God. Probably my favorite and the most convicting quote that I've, I've come across on hospitality came from a sermon by Mark Buchanan. Here's how he defined hospitality. He said, Western hospitality, that's us. Western hospitality is inviting friends over for a few hours. Biblical hospitality is persuading strangers to stay one more night. Divine hospitality is pursuing enemies at great personal cost to turn them into sons and daughters and to welcome them in your house and at your table forever. (laughs) See, the hospitality of God ultimately is an invitation to every stranger to come home. Jesus has invited us. He's inviting your neighbors to come home. And our hospitality is paper and pen for that invitation. And we love our neighbors surely being pen and paper for the invitation of Christ is the very least that we can do. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you. Oh God, I thank you for the hospitality that you've shown to us. You invited us in, not just as strangers, not just to entertain us, not not just for a day or two, but you adopted us into your family and, and you shared your life with us. Jesus, I pray that you would help us I pray that you would help us to be a people of divine hospitality.
I pray that you would help us to be the paper and pen for your invitation to our neighbors and our friends who don't know Jesus, to be the invitation that they would come home to the family of God. Jesus, we say thank you. You are amazingly good and gracious and hospitable. I pray that we would be the same, that we would imitate you in that, that we would honor you as we do that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.